really imprisons you in your own mind and you just forget there's a world out there but at the same time if you have somebody who has high anxiety as like one of the heads of your family and you still see them going on taking care of other people and doing what they are supposed to on a day-to-day basis while dealing with this you end up developing a very high respect for that person as well as learning that if you end up having the same thing it is possible to continue on and figure out a way to deal with it and still be able to go through it and have a good life you can't have a good life. That's the great thing. Like, it's yeah, not going to okay, stop you. okay, you're scared of everything, but there's nice stuff. There's still olives. We can play Clue. I don't have to go anywhere to do that. <laughs> Today, we're talking about mental illness and the family. Since this is a huge topic, I'm focusing this episode on just the two most common, anxiety and depression. I know, you're thinking that's still a huge topic, but that's how we roll at the USCCB. This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB about how real people live out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. On today's episode, we're talking about being a Catholic with a mental illness. This topic is near and dear to my heart since I'm one of them. My goal in this podcast is to simply shed some light on the experience that many people in the pews have. If you think you're alone in this, you are not. We're starting with Tommy Tai, who is the author of the Catholic Hipster Handbook. So my name is Tommy Tai. I'm a father of four boys. I live in the Bay Area, and I'm a marriage and family therapist, mostly focusing on, in my career, treating people with chronic and persistent mental illness, and also, you know, Catholic. I should say that too, probably. For Tommy, and a lot of people with depression, identifying the beginning of it is difficult. I can think back as a kid at a mom who was very sick. I don't know if I would say I was depressed over it, but I knew that it didn't feel good. She died when I was 23, 24, kind of unexpectedly. And so that was a really, really difficult time for me. And at that time, if I would say I was depressed, it mostly manifested as anger, anger at God, anger at everyone who was trying to comfort me. Because, you know, even though so many people have experienced something, it's really hard to let their, to let them in, kind of. I think it's really easy to feel like no one's ever been through what I've been through, and you push everybody away. And I don't know why, but that kind of feels good in the moment. And in the end, looking back, it's like, man, if I really would have let some people in who were trying to help, that's probably what I needed the most. But depression really took hold of Tommy after he and his wife lost their infant son, Luke. That was a year and a half ago. It was like 20 months ago, I guess. And... Even today, I can't really drive to work very often by myself because I have a one-hour commute each direction, and it's impossible for me to be alone in the car for one hour and not think about him and not start crying. Tommy thinks that one of the reasons that depression is so isolating is our American social conventions about conversation. One of our problems as a culture in terms of our mental health is it's not okay, it's like unacceptable to talk about feelings that are uncomfortable with other people. And I think that that leads to us feeling lonely and like bottling it up and it only gets worse and worse if we're lonely right we were meant to be in community and to be be loved by other people and to love other people and part of that's being able to share even like your worst feelings and so being with families who've been through what we've been through is so nice because you can say something that somebody who somebody else would be like whoa you're totally nuts i can't even imagine that you're saying that but a family who's been through it is like yep i get that i feel that way all the time 
For Catholics, depression can easily be compounded by guilt for not being joyful. We are told all the time that to witness to Christ, we have to be joyful. That just makes it worse. Something that we hear a lot through Catholic media is that Catholics are supposed to be joyful all the time because, after all, Jesus died for us, which is true and wonderful and kind of mind-blowing to think about, but not my experience that I'm able to be joyful all the time, even though I know that Jesus wins in the end, even though I know that every tear will be wiped away in heaven, I still can't be joyful all the time when I'm suffering. Like when you lose a kid, you can't be joyful. You can be hopeful that you can survive, but that's a very different thing than walking around with a smile on your face and attracting people to the joy that's inside of you. Now, no one is disputing that a joyful person is a great witness to Jesus, but it's not the only kind of witness. I think that persevering through suffering and still getting up and going to Mass every week, even though you're so angry at God you can't even pray, that says a lot to me. Like, if I see someone doing that, I'm like, wow, faith must mean something to this person. And since this needs to be said, and I wish it didn't, depression is an illness. It's not a choice or a personal failing. As a therapist, Tommy also treats mental illness. One of the first things we always talk about with families when they come in is, This isn't this person's decision. This isn't their choice. If they're treating you a certain way when they're in an episode, it's not their fault. You need to understand that illness is doing this to them and they need treatment. If you need medication, you got to come to terms with it and, and go for it. That is a way that mental illness differs from something like cancer. We seem to think we can just will ourselves to feel better. It's kind of Pelagian, like if we can just do something right, we can save ourselves. Sometimes people come to Tommy with a certain mindset. So something that we see, that I see all the time, is people coming in thinking that they should be able to beat a mental illness without taking medication, right? Even without therapy, people just want to be able to beat a mental illness. They think that they should be able to because I think that's what our culture tells us. But we have to like get to that point where there's something going on here that's beyond our control. There's something happening to us that if we could beat it, if we could turn off our mood swings, right, if we have bipolar disorder or our mania or elevated mood that's getting way too high, if we could turn that off, we would, but there's something physical going on in addition to all of the emotional stuff that we've experienced in our life that needs to be treated. I know this mindset quite well. When I finally went to therapy and cried in the office for an hour straight without even stopping to breathe, basically, um, I asked my therapist how long it would take until I was better. Could we just meet a couple times and I'd be normal again? Months later, when she mentioned medication, I resisted that like it was my job. I thought medication was the easy way out and that people would judge me if they knew about it and I'd have to tell my parents and even the dentist would know because you have to tell the dentist what medications you're on and I thought it would be like wearing a big neon failure sign on my forehead. But you know what? It's not. So it's really difficult for me to watch people come in because their parents are like, you know, you need to go in and talk to somebody and when they show up... They have that sort of mindset that's been ingrained in all of us that we shouldn't have to take medication to beat our mental problems. If we're strong enough, then we're going to be able to take care of it ourselves. And if we can't, if we need medication, we must be like a weakling who wasn't able to overcome our problems on our own, which is like unbelievable because if you had cancer or diabetes or a broken arm, nobody ever tells you you should just focus and be stronger and take care of it yourself. That's ridiculous. But for whatever reason, the science about mental illness doesn't get into our DNA as a culture. I I don't understand why. A lot of times in therapy, someone will come in and we start to try to do this quick fix stuff, 
which sometimes helps people, but other times we need to learn to take uh, super small steps and, and consider victories in really, really small things, like not beating yourself up in your mind for a day. That's a huge victory because when you're depressed, you're doing that constantly all day long. So I think we need to shift our focus of like where we're starting, be more like the what about Bob therapist and take baby steps to get better. And we have to be willing to see victories in those tiny things. Tommy encourages people to share their stories, not to hide mental illness in the shadows. We are the church, and I think the number one thing that we can start doing is being vulnerable and telling our stories. I think loneliness is the biggest obstacle to us. It's the biggest kind of killer, right? It's like we feel so alone. I'm sure there's people in my parish sitting in the pews who have or do currently feel like suicidal and thinking that it might not be worth going on, and they're at church. And it would be helpful if we created a community, all of us, I'm not putting it on the priests or the bishops or anything, a community of sharing where we make our stories known so that people know that they're not alone, so that people know that there's a couple in the pews who's lost an infant who knows what it's like, or there's someone in the pews who's suffered addiction and is trying and struggling to get past it, or somebody who's lost a spouse and is deeply depressed and thinking about taking their own life. Imagine if all those people knew that there was people in the pews who were suffering just like them or who had suffered and survived, what that would do if we could just get comfortable enough to talk to each other. Our next witness is Teresa Biffis, whose journey has included an anxiety disorder. My name is Teresa Biffis, and I've been married for three and a half years. I have a two-year-old son, and then I'm pregnant with my second. Teresa identified her anxiety with the help of a friend in college. And she said, wow, it sounds like you worry a lot. And I was like, well, doesn't everybody? And she said, not really. And I had not actually realized until that point that it was not normal to have a sort of constant soundtrack of worrying stuff in the back of your head. I knew that I had this constant soundtrack, and I did not realize that that was abnormal. I thought that the difference between having an anxiety disorder and not having an anxiety disorder is whether you could turn that soundtrack down low enough that you could leave your house and go to class and do your homework and pass your classes. And she was like, no, I just, if there's a sort of acute problem, I worry about it. But I do not just sit around worrying about stuff for no other reason than it is there and I could worry about it. And I was like, oh. So Teresa went to the college counseling office. They asked you all these questions and stuff. So then they give you the score out of 100 and I got a 98 out of 100 on the anxiety score. So the therapist was like, I'm really glad you came in. And I was like, yeah, me too. But now I sort of wish I'd come in last year. That's the thing about mental illness. You think it's normal, and you think everybody else is like that, too. So this is what a person with anxiety may be experiencing. You know, I'm on this bus, and it could explode. Or the person next to me could turn out to be a homicidal maniac. Or there's nobody else on this bus, so the bus driver could decide to kidnap me, and I wouldn't be able to get out, and... Maybe all my family at home just died in a car crash 20 minutes ago and nobody has gotten in touch with me to tell me yet. And, you know, maybe everybody that I know was only pretending to like me because they think I'm pathetic and they feel sorry for me. Everything bad that could happen sort of 
seems like a real possibility. You can know rationally that you're not in control of everything, but the thoughts still come. Having children has made me more aware of how vulnerable life really is. Because you can be doing everything right and some things really are just out of your control. I mean, you could buy them like the perfect car seat and put it in exactly the way you're supposed to and follow all the rules. I don't know how much you know about car seats. There are a lot of car seat rules. But so like you could follow all of the rules exactly. And like somebody else falls asleep for one second and it doesn't matter. Teresa was hesitant to tell her parents what she was going through. They were mostly upset because they were worried that I had felt like they wouldn't be supportive, which was not at all what I was worried about. I just couldn't really figure out how to start, so I couldn't start. In the church, sometimes people spiritualize what is actually a psychological problem. Well, I did have, you know, a certain amount of people trying to explain it all in spiritual terms, which I thought was really unhelpful. I also think in retrospect, a lot of that stuff was part of what made me delay treatment for as long as I did, because I had this idea that the sort of core problem was that I was not holy enough. Which, I mean, it would be great if I were holier. And I'm sure that would have made it easier to deal with. And I think if you're worried that you might have a psychological problem, then go ahead and start saying the rosary every day, but call a therapist too and ask them what they think. And if they don't think you have a problem, it's not like they're going to say, oh, well, we just diagnosed you with made-up disease. Please come back every week. And Teresa emphasizes, like Tommy, that we don't treat other illnesses the way that we do mental illness. We have this idea that, like, if you pray hard enough, you will get cured of anxiety and depression. But we don't have this idea that if you pray hard enough, you will get cured of cancer. And when people say things that sound like that, then we are all like, whoa, don't say stuff like that. It's really insensitive to the people that do die of cancer in their families. I mean, there's really nothing where we say, well, if you just pray hard enough, that will solve it the way we do for mental illness. Teresa's anxiety is well-managed now, so she doesn't think of herself as someone having anxiety anymore. But she is thankful for her husband and his support. He's a better person than I am, so I think he is better at dealing with my issues than I am at dealing with his. (laughs) he's a lot more like self-sacrificing and forgiving and I'm just like "Ah!" now I had the chance to interview a woman with anxiety and panic attacks and her teenage daughter who really had to take on some of the responsibility for the family when her mom was sick I'm Sarah Elliott I have suffered from anxiety for about 30 years I have six children and I run a household, kind of, and uh, I've had panic attacks probably for the last 20 years on a daily basis. My name is Moira and I have suffered from anxiety and depression for about eight years and also had a mother who had bad anxiety during the time I was growing up. I'm 19. I hope you enjoy listening to the birds in the background. I asked Sarah when this all started for her. I guess I was like maybe 19. I went to college. During my second year there, I just, I stopped being able to sleep. I stopped being able to talk to people and just kind of isolated myself. I just, everything made me so nervous and worried. And I started to just, I felt like I was dying all the time. And I just eventually melted and had to quit school. 
One of Sarah's friends once asked her to describe what she felt like. It's kind of like someone followed you with a gun to the back of your head and they say, I'm going to pull the trigger at some point. (laughs) So that's kind of what it feels like. It's like once you have a couple panic attacks, then you start to worry about worrying and then you worry about panicking. And so it just follows you everywhere you go and there's no escape. You hear the gun get cocked or something and you're like, (gasps) here it comes. Feeling like that is obviously going to affect your relationships. The sort of isolation that comes with being an anxious person affects the whole family. If you have little kids, going places becomes a huge fiasco, and it makes their life hard. My kids are very understanding about it, happily. I I was honest with them about what it was, you know, even when they were little, and I'd say, oh, we have to go now. And they'd say, what's wrong? And I'd just say, well, you know, sometimes I get scared for no reason, and I just can't be here. Okay. <laughs> They were so good. So yeah, we just not pretended it wasn't real. Yeah, it was just kind of a normal thing for us too. So we didn't freak out when it happened. If we were out somewhere, just go, oh, okay. We know that if she was panicking, you'd just be like, mom's falling over again. Yeah, it wasn't a laughing kind of matter, but we wouldn't be freaking out. When things get really bad, it will be hospital for a couple of weeks. And so we kind of pick up the slack. Yeah. Since I've not known anyone who suffered from panic attacks, I asked Sarah to describe hers. It's different for everybody, but when I have a panic attack, I start to get a little nervous and antsy first. I'm like, okay, here it comes. And then my vision will start to change. I'll just become hyper aware of everything that's around me. And then you do just get this adrenaline rush that's crazy. And it feels like you're having a heart attack, like your heart is stopping or you're having a stroke or something because you get disoriented and all of your senses go wonko it feels like death here is one time that sarah had a panic attack in a public place one day i was i was walking through a shopping mall and all of a sudden i just got this adrenaline rush and everything went black and my hands and feet just went numb and i just fell on the ground and somebody called an ambulance And they took me to the hospital and the doctor said, yeah, you had a panic attack. I'm going, no way that was a panic attack. That was a stroke, man. Did you check? (laughs) It was a panic attack and that started and it just triggered. I would have five, six, seven panic attacks a day where I couldn't leave the house. I couldn't do anything. So it it took a long time just to get used to living with that and knowing Knowing that I was going to be all right, even when I was really not all right, you know, to be able to be left alone, to be able to go to sleep at night and go, I will not be dead in the morning. This is a panic attack. Sarah's daughter, Moira, learned how to read her mom's nonverbal signals. I could always tell because you start running your fingers through your hair. When you got anxious, you'd start doing that and scratching your head just to kind of have some kind of sense of like, this is a thing I can do. Here I am. So as soon as I saw that, I'd be like, mom needs to get out of here now. I used to check my pulse a lot like this. Just be like, okay, it's still calm. It's still good. It's still calm. still alive. She points out that kids accept the reality that they know. And if you're honest with them about what's going on, they can take it. I think it's when the kids don't know what's happening. That's the scariest part. They can handle knowing the truth. Yeah, I think so. One extraordinary thing about this family is their laughter. When you say when things got really bad, yeah. how would you describe that? <laughs> or how, would you... <laughs> how would you describe really bad? Wow. Really bad. 
Sarah shares a little about her struggle with the faith through all this. For the first many, many years, I just spent all of my life looking at God going like, why are you doing this? It's so mean. It's just so mean. And it wasn't really until maybe three or four years ago that I actually came to a point where I realized that's not God. You know, just that he's not doing, he's not doing this. Sarah connects her experience with that of the apostles. You know that reading where Jesus tells people to eat his flesh and drink his blood and everybody says, that's nuts, I'm out of here. And he says to the 12, are you going to leave too? And they just go, where are we going to go? You're it. That's it. And so it's, it's really a great act of the will to just lean into that and to have this sense that there is a place of safety in God, no matter what is going to happen to me. Yeah, one of these days I might be walking through a mall and have a stroke and die. Okay, lots of people do. (laughs) But it's gonna be fine. There is no worry. She also had a doctor who helped her to embrace her powerlessness. He recognized immediately that I was absolutely crazy with anxiety. He gave me a tranquilizer. And he said, I want you to take this and I want you to think, do you make the sun come up in the morning? No. Do you make the rain fall down on the earth? Do you make people, you know, do you keep everything in operation? No, no. He's like, well, why don't you just leave life to that guy and you just stop worrying and take this pill and go home and take care of your children. I think that was like the first time I came to some kind of realization that maybe God was the safe place. I had never been able to think that way before. It was always, he's going to judge me. I'm going to go to hell. I'm going to have a panic attack. I'm going to have a stroke. I'm going to go to hell. (laughs) That's a big panic attack. (laughs) Sarah speaks about the helps that Catholics have in dealing with mental illness that are special to our faith. This is the great thing about being Catholic, too, is we have built-in rituals to deal with this. You know, we have confession or we have deliverance ministries. We have adoration. And these are all places that we can go and sort of there's a way to sort of enact your healing. And Sarah and Moira had things to say about helping family members with mental illnesses. The person who has anxiety knows how difficult they are. I've been the person with anxiety being crazy. Because, I mean, frankly, it is kind of crazy. And I've been the person trying to help somebody else. And you still, even if you have panic attacks, when you are with someone who has a panic attack, you're like, get it together, man! (laughs) It's that crazy that even the crazy people are saying, you're crazy. (laughs) I don't know if there's any magic advice for people, but I think it's just to Stick with it to remember that those anxiety attacks are not that person. The person with anxiety in your life needs us to be reminded who they are often because they forget really, really fast because all they can think about is their fears. And pretty soon your fears are you. So just having people around you that remind you who you are on a daily basis is, I think, the best thing you can have. 
And now we're going to turn to an expert. This is the psychiatrist who wrote the book, The Catholic Guide to Depression. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It is nuanced and clear. I am Aaron Cariotti. I'm associate professor of psychiatry at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine, and I direct the medical ethics program at UCI Health. Dr. Cariotti has been a psychiatrist for 11 years, and even though he never advertised or promoted himself as a Catholic psychiatrist, word spread. That's how he knew there was an audience for this book. My practice was full, and I was turning away new referrals all the time for people looking for a Catholic psychiatrist suggested to me that there was an audience out there for a book like this and that people were very hungry when dealing with personal mental health struggles. They were very eager to find help from folks that really understood and resonated with them in regards to their spiritual or moral or religious convictions. Dr. Cariotti talks about a both-and approach to depression that takes the whole person into account usually a both-and rather than an either-or approach to healing is preferable. What I mean by that is medications alone are effective, psychotherapy alone is effective, but you put the two together and both combined are more effective than one or another alone. Likewise, prayer and meditation can be effective at reducing the risk. Growth in the virtues of gratitude and forgiveness can be helpful in reducing the risk of depression or recovering from an episode. But combining those kinds of interventions with psychotherapy or with biological interventions like medications, those things combined are going to be more effective than one or another intervention alone. Catholic priests are often on the front lines of responding to a mental health episode or crisis. In my experience, priests are very eager to learn about mental health issues, especially those who have been ordained for a couple of years or a significant period of time. It doesn't take long for them to encounter people in the confessional or in other areas of their pastoral work that require mental health evaluation or treatment for a mental illness. Most priests are pretty adept at recognizing the scope and limits of their area of expertise, and they want to know when it might be appropriate to refer. They don't need to become psychologists. They don't need to become professional therapists. What most of them want is a sense of how to pick up on signs that a person may be struggling with a mental illness, and then what are the resources that I can plug them into. And since we've been talking about mental illness versus other physical illnesses, Dr. Cariotti shares this story. I recall an elderly patient who had suffered both life-threatening breast cancer and had suffered severe bouts of clinical depression. And I'll never forget, she once told me that if she had to choose between the two, she would choose the cancer because the episodes of depression actually caused her far more suffering. When she was going through cancer and surgery and chemotherapy, she was showered and lavished with support from her community and from her friends and from other parishioners, whereas sadly, when she was struggling with depression, the pain was much less visible and uh, she felt, unfortunately, more isolated. Our Catholic faith offers us a way of thinking about all suffering, including mental illness. The Catholic faith can provide us with a sense that suffering is not meaningless. By uniting our suffering to the suffering of Christ on the cross, our suffering can become redemptive. It can help us grow closer to God and can help others for whom we are praying. 
This is the main point we're getting to in this episode. Catholics are sometimes called to carry the cross of mental illness, but as with all suffering, it can serve to bring us closer to the Lord. In fact, even the stigma that surrounds mental illness is an opportunity to embrace how Christ also is misunderstood. St. John Paul II wrote in his apostolic letter on the Christian meaning of human suffering, quote, It is suffering, more than anything else, which clears the way for the grace which transforms human souls. End quote. Really, it's just an adventure. And every experience that we've gone through that includes colitis or anxiety or panic attacks or something in the end will ultimately lead us closer to God because it makes us stronger once you through them and realize that he actually can handle it. Well, look how many times in scripture it says, don't be afraid. Yep. Be not over afraid. Over and over. So, I mean, he knows that we're scared. We're freaking terrified. <laughs> <laughs> There's something in suffering that there's a lot of value in it, and we've been given a way to suffer by looking at Jesus and the Blessed Mother. And so for me, when I'm suffering, that kind of thinking and going down that path and meditating on those ideas uh, is a lot more helpful than expecting that God is going to just pop in and kind of create miracles and make everything okay. I want to thank my witnesses in a special way this time. Sarah, Moira, Teresa, and Tommy, thank you for sharing your stories. In another part of JP2's letter, he says that people who suffer become similar to one another, and I felt a real connection with all of you. Thanks so much. I got so much material from Dr. Aaron Cariotti that I'm also going to post some of his answers to questions that just didn't fit into the episode. But for those of you who want to go deeper into the issue of Catholics and depression, please listen to those. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, with the notable exception of the music, which was composed and produced by Michael Taylor. Hello, this is Michael. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.